In last season's episodes, particularly our first episode, we talked about why we were creating this podcast. And the main reason is to build capacity within the off-reserve community of Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples within the maritime provinces surrounding emerging ocean topics. And that's still the goal, to talk about the ocean. We discussed how taking care of our ocean is extremely important for all of us on this planet, and how life as we know it depends on us taking care of the ocean. This season, I want to dig a little bit deeper on particular topics, but I want to go back to the beginning and talk about general ocean literacy and how people are intricately connected to the ocean, whether we realize it or not. Gwei, hello, and welcome to the second season of Khan, Our Living Ocean. I'm your host, Brian Martin. Today, our topic explores the realm of ocean literacy, what it is and why it's important, something that we've been touching upon in all our episodes, but haven't really had a chance to direct our energy. I thought this would be a great way to open up our second season before we go into more focused topics. And who better to chat about ocean literacy with than Dr. Diz Glithrow, the national lead from the Canadian Ocean Literacy Coalition, also known as COLC for short. Now, Diz works as an interdisciplinary educator, social science researcher, and project leader specializing in ocean, climate, and sustainability learning and civic engagement. And after our interview, there were so many things that we had talked about that resonated some of the Mi'kmaq ways of knowing that I had to go bug knowledge holder Gerald Glode once again, whom you might remember from last year's second episode, where we compared modern science with some Mi'kmaq legends. So without further ado, let's dive in. So welcome, Dis, and thank you so much for being here with us today. We very much appreciate it. Oh, Brian, thanks so much for having me. It's a real delight to be here with you. Um, if we dive right in, so you've been working on ocean literacy at least since 2018 with Colk, uh, with Colk's formation, and probably longer than that. And we'll talk about Colk in a minute. But if we start at the beginning, what is ocean literacy, at least from a Canadian perspective? Yeah, I mean, the widely accepted term or definition for ocean literacy that's used globally is the extent to which we understand our impact on the ocean and the ocean's impact on us. But I would add that in the Canadian context, a lot of the focus of the conversation over the past few years has been around our relationship with the ocean, which definitely includes our understanding and knowledge of that reciprocity. But it also goes a bit further to include our, our connection, that emotional connection or how we value the ocean and that ethic of care. And I think those are important dimensions. That's awesome. And if we ended our show right now, that is really the take home message that I want people to understand, knowing that the ocean affects us and that we affect the ocean, but it's not the end. So we'll continue. <laughs> um, so what we're really saying here is that it's not about knowing the Latin names of fish, or it's not about knowing how to navigate using the stars or the currents. And that as a scientist, I'm not necessarily ocean literate, but my grandfather, who was a fisherman who could barely read, probably was himself ocean literate. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a great example, Brian. I, you know, for I think the most ocean literate people are indigenous peoples or, or coastal settlers who are lived on or by near the water for thousands of years or settlers hundreds of years, and they have that intimacy, that relationship, that that daily interaction with the ocean, and I think very much so fishers and people working by and on the water are the most ocean literate. I, I had a moment, it was interesting, like in, in 2017, I had the privileged opportunity of being part of a, 
an expedition that went around the entire coastline of Canada. And wow. what struck me then was the term ocean literacy never came up once in those 150 days. Right. That relationship to or with connection to the ocean, um, the role and, and kind of reverence for the ocean, um, the dependency or interdependency, that's what came up. So for me, that's, that's the important part. It's not the term itself. It's the relationship. Mm, I like that, a relationship with the ocean. In Atlantic Canada, I get it. We should know about the ocean. But you're in central-ish Canada. Why should you be concerned about ocean literacy? I mean, really, there's only 11 of our 13 Canadian provinces and territories that border on the ocean. Obviously, I'm being a bit silly here. But, but why central Canada? Why, why are we all part of this ocean realm, including folks that live thousands of kilometers from the ocean? It's a good question, and, and it's, I'd say it's the most important. You know, 30 million Canadians live inland, and they don't have that daily connection. And yet, the ocean is the t determining life system, the planet, right? We, we need a healthy ocean in order to have life on land, not the other way around. And I think for inland people, we don't pause to realize that. And, and it's essential that we do. I mean, the health of the ocean is vital. And so... The other thing too is I think for inland Canadians, the connection or and maybe part of the the identity is is water, fresh water, because we, we are such a you know yeah. blessed country with water and the longest coastline. So we, we have both. And I think for for me, I think the real fun and joy is, is connecting those dots because it's all part of the same story. Right. So for inland Canadians, the ocean isn't front and center, but water sure is. And there's five major ocean drainage basins in Canada. So wherever you live, we're all part of one of those five ocean drainage basins. So the connection point is local waterways and watersheds because all of them are eventually flowing to the ocean. And I think if we do a good job, we being kind of the community, ocean literacy community in Canada to make that freshwater ocean connection and to also make the ocean climate connection because as we start to really become more aware of that of our our daily choices and behaviors as families as organizations as governments around climate action that directly relates to and impacts ocean and ocean health and essentially our own health and future well-being so yeah you know, it's looked it's being able to step back and see that big picture and all those points of connection it's not just about what we know about the ocean like it really is this kind of systems level thinking. And it's really not a new concept either, right? I mean, I think you're the one who um, brought to my attention the 1941 children's book, Paddle to the Sea, that mm -hmm. was published in 41, in I think. And then the film, National Film Board um, turned it into a little film in 1966. And it talks directly about this, that all streams and rivers flow to the sea, essentially, as that ocean continuum, I guess. Um, and the, the funny thing, when when you had mentioned that book, I think it was in 2019 or something, I thought it was a, another book that I'd read, which was Paddle to the Amazon, which was about people going down and not necessarily a little toy boat, but um, I digress. <laughs> One thing I completely forgot to mention and to talk to Gerald about is part of the ocean continuum, how the ocean really doesn't stop at the coast. And at Cape Breton, that can even be seen in the naming of the Bordeaux Lakes, the Duba, to which all things flow. But that can be taken one step farther, that it's not only water that flows to the sea, but there's also an incredible amount of biomass that flows inland in the form of dehydromous fish. 
fish that spend parts of their lives in both fresh and salt waters. And they sometimes migrate hundreds of kilometers from the sea, and some species even more than that. And that could have been gaspero, sea run trout, bass, sturgeon, and at least formerly, blamu, or the Atlantic salmon. If we go back to Coke, so you are the, or the Canadian Ocean Literacy Coalition, you are the national lead. Tell me a little bit about what the coalition is and how it came to be and essentially where, where it's headed. Yeah, absolutely. So the coalition was founded in the fall of 2018 and it was launched at the G7 ministerial meetings in Halifax. And the goal of the coalition, it, it kind of grew out of a very informal uh, consulting project where we were just taking a pulse check of what this term ocean literacy meant in Canada. And the Ocean Frontier Institute and Dalhousie University were part of that initial kind of catalyst to get that conversation going. And part of it was back in 2018, people were looking ahead to the ocean decade. So from 2021 to 2030 is the United Nations uh, Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development, which is a mouthful. So we just say the ocean yeah. decade. And, and so part of it, knowing that the decade was going to be focused on the ocean, but not just ocean science. There was also going to be a real important element around ocean literacy and, and citizen engagement. And so, you know, there was a desire to, to get some of that groundwork in place before the decade started. But also, I would argue that the coalition was started because there wasn't a great understanding between organizations as to who was doing what, with who, what was working, what wasn't working. It was also to build more, much more of a collaborative spirit because in anything that's kind of outreach, education, community-based or communication-based, there can often be a lot of competition for the very small pots of funding for these initiatives. And at the end of the day, there was a lot of duplication and a lot of just lack of coordination. And I think we had reached a point where different organizations thought, and there was nine at the start that came together and just created a space for a conversation. How can we work better together? Is it, can we align our efforts? And that was the spirit out of which the coalition grew. So we're not a legal entity where we define ourselves as, a, as an independent national project office. So I don't represent any one organization. I have the, you know, I, I serve kind of the community established mandate and report to a governance board that is representatives from across different organizations and regions. Right. And what we've done, the easiest way to kind of think about our work over the last three years is the first year we focused on conducting a, a research-based national study and, and did that kind of from the bottom up, like five regions across the country, each with a dedicated research coordinator and asking the same questions. What does the term mean? What is the state of ocean literacy? What's working? What are the strengths, gaps, barriers? And then we took all those regional reports and insights and wanting to certainly celebrate the regional and cultural diversity, but also look for patterns of, of where there is shared kind of overlap and, and identify some national priorities. And it was very easy to see those that there were there were 10 clear national priorities that emerged across that five different regional studies. And then that became the basis in year two with which we then co-developed a national strategy. And a, the National Canadian Ocean Literacy Strategy, we're the first country in the world with a national strategy, which is certainly yes. exciting. Um, but more important, it gave us now a framework for action 
to take us into the decade as a now a much more united and kind of coordinated community and with nine priority areas or action areas that we are advancing together through different projects and so different organizations are taking the lead based on their own expertise and capacity to drive one of those or a couple of those priority areas forward i've got the easy job i just stitch together the different <laughs> projects and pieces and and help to support those efforts and communicate those efforts out so we can really share um, you know how how ocean literacy is advancing in canada over the the next 10 years which is exciting and the, the five regions if i'm not mistaken are atlantic central inuit nunungat pacific and i'm missing the fifth one and uh, great lake st lawrence great lake st lawrence okay similar to we i guess that's its own its own entity um do you want to say what the the nine or ten priorities is real quick do you have do you have them off the <laughs> yeah so we had uh we identified nine kind of action action streams we we define them or call them in the strategy and what's unique is some of them are very tangible like specific projects because people identified that as being a priority, almost foundational to the work. Right. And then others are much broader. And to give you a few examples, so one was the established establishing an ocean literacy map and database, like a, a community platform. And so that's already been done. We did that in our first year since launching the strategy. And it's just a place where people can see the different ocean literacy initiatives and projects happening in different communities by different organizations across the country. And that becomes a really nice kind of central hub to, and we can start to track too the changes from where we are now to the different initiatives and trends and changes in initiatives by 2030. We also, with funding being identified across all five of those regional studies being a real barrier and challenge, um, one of those action areas is then to establish a, a community microgrant program specific for for ocean literacy initiatives. So that's that's underway being established right now. Strengthening ocean education, not surprising. And, and both formal education, getting more ocean uh, learning integrated into provincial and territorial curriculum, but also looking at broader informal and non-formal education and how do we strengthen that through public libraries, museums, what have you. Another one which is exciting because we just launched last week is Ocean Week Canada. Yay. And, and that's really fun. I mean, and there's been, this is a great example where there's been so much good work already happening in the country. And Halifax is a, a great example. They, for the last five years, co-founded by two amazing young women. They've had you know, Ocean Week Halifax. That's been a real kind of celebration and festival for a week around World Ocean Day, June 8th. And so Ocean Week Canada was kind of scaling up what was happening regionally or on community levels and to again, kind of create that much more coordinated national scale celebration of the ocean in Canada. And so, yeah, definitely worth checking out Ocean Week Canada. And that's a place where anyone, like even if it's just one community going out to do a shoreline cleanup or a project happening in a school or anything uh, that anyone's doing in Canada, it's a place to kind of share what you're doing and to celebrate that together. And so we're like, hoping to be down in Halifax this year too, for the first time in two years um, with with Mapsy. So we'll uh, hopefully see a bunch of bunch of folks down there. Absolutely! Oh, that's great. Yeah, it'd be nice to have those in person events again. And just I'll give you just one or two other examples, just of those broader ones that are that yeah. are harder to operationalize but essential, and we've got to figure out how to advance those. And so 
you know, one was around ocean and human health. It came out clearly that there needs to be better understanding and connection. Definitely. Telling of that work. So that's one. And the other is around access and diversity. You know, the, the ocean sector in Canada, although, you know, incredibly strong and innovative, there's, there's a need for, you know, much more increased um, access to some of the discussions and opportunities and policy making, but also to ensure that equity and diversity in all those opportunities are there. So we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, what's really funny, and I hadn't even planned on talking about this, but um, ocean and human health, we often as, as Southerners don't think about it as much, but in, in Wittenberg, the people rely on country food and that's where a lot of those pollutions, those long-term pollutions, PCBs, um, end up in the water. And they're they're getting sick because the ocean is getting sick. So it's unbelievable how important that, that particular one is. Um, but you also mentioned microgrants and funding. And I find it's really interesting that the Canadian government is really starting to think about this as well in their engagement paper for Canada's blue economy strategy from 2021, promoting ocean literacy was even in the financial sector um, as, as a discrete recommendation, implying that increasing collective ocean literacy will essentially assist with Canada's blue economy. So we definitely can't separate ocean literacy from the economy or even from industry. So I think that's, that's unbelievable. Absolutely. And I think it is encouraging to see that. And, and I think, you know, kudos to the the broad ocean literacy community in Canada because I think that's been a lot of the the good work that's been done over the last few years is to really build that narrative right that it's essential that there we when Canada's works hard towards developing that blue economy strategy that they see the ocean literacy piece not in the 11th hour where it's like the final outreach piece but everything yeah. else has been figured out it's actually foundational it's really core because it's it's all about attracting that talent pipeline too. If you want to build a sustainable blue economy and that future kind of ocean growth, ensuring also ocean health at the same time, you want to be able to attract the brightest minds and the most innovative and creative and diverse group of individuals and talent into that, that space, right? Yeah. So without ocean literacy, I mean, that's part of it. And the, the really interesting thing is that ocean literacy is for everybody of all ages, from scientists to stay-at-home parents to our own minister of fisheries and oceans. Um, there's always something to learn about ocean literacy in general. And I'm pretty sure that we have some fisheries managers and some biologists and scientists listening to this uh, to this recording. What should ocean literacy mean for them, the folks that work in the industry, the ones that may already have a lot of ocean knowledge? Mm. That's a, a great, tough one. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. It's a great one, though. And I, you know, when you ask that, what goes through my mind is part of it. There's so much innovation and leadership in in Canada in the ocean industry sector. And you know, right away, thinking of small companies like Jasco out east and some of the ocean tech and the innovative work they're doing. There's so many examples and. Part of it is, I think, when you think of their role or how they should think about ocean literacy, part of it is getting better at telling their story, like sharing their story with Canadians. Like what is it, what are the innovations they're doing or pursuing and why? Why do they matter? How are they helping to, you know, restore or ensure ocean health? How are they contributing to a blue economy? 
what are the ways that Canadians can get involved or be engaged or what are those opportunities so that so that the work they're doing doesn't stay siloed within that that space of expertise that right. it becomes part of the public narrative and I think that that's a lot of what the role I think that ocean literacy can play in 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 industries that storytelling piece because it just by doing that the relevance of that work gets elevated yeah. but also the access um, or opportunity to engage in that work and learn more you know becomes more available to more Canadians and I think that's that's really exciting I'm really glad that you said that because that's actually exactly what we're hoping to do uh, on World Ocean Day this year is to showcase some of the stuff that we do in in terms of monitoring right? ocean ocean monitoring. So that's that's really cool. Awesome. <laughs> now I want to take a quick detour here. At the Maritime Aboriginal Peoples Council, some of us often talk about ecocentric worldviews, which is a term used in environmental ethics to denote a nature-centered system of values as opposed to a human-centered system of values, known as homocentric or anthropocentric. And this is a term that the conservationist Aldo Leopold came up with back at the turn of the century. But he wasn't the first, and I'll get to that in a second. But what ecocentric means is that the Earth's ecology and ecosystems, that includes the atmosphere, water, land, and all life forms, they all have intrinsic value, even if they can't be used by humans as resources. Now, to a certain extent, an ecocentric worldview ties into holism, the scientific approach that everything is connected, which in my opinion, being ocean literate helps with those broad approaches and worldview. Now, as you can probably imagine, Aldo Leopold didn't invent the ecocentric worldview. In fact, indigenous peoples have observed those values since time immemorial. So I'm gonna bring in my friend and knowledge holder, Gerald Glode, to briefly tell me about the ecocentric worldview and the Mi'kmaq way of life. Can you tell me about the ecocentric worldview from a Mi'kmaq perspective? And again, it is nothing more natural than it can be. And that's both in the very, very past and right up to today. Like, I mean, Ndugalumk is a word that we use that today it's taken on a different meaning. It talks about hunting and fishing. Yeah. And, but Ndugalumk is actually a way of sustaining yourself. And uh, because this episode is about ocean literacy, I just uh, we were talking about the blue economy, mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't necessarily know what the blue economy was. So I looked up a definition, and the World Bank describes it as a sustainable use of the ocean resources for economic growth, improved livelihoods and jobs, while preserving the health of the ocean ecosystems. To me, that sounds a heck of a lot like Nadigalim in reference yeah. to the ocean. Yeah, because the the word that a lot of people miss is sustainability or sustainable. Yeah. It's like it can only take so much, right? It's anything will bend, but it can also break. When you take a look at our ecological calendar, and we had one right there and it's gone, but um, it talks about all the events that we participate in our annual cycle and divide it up into 13 months of the year. Each one of those months is a moon cycle. Starts with the dark of the moon and goes on for 29 days till the next dark of the moon. And that month, the name of that month is based on something that goes on in the environment during that period. Right. Those gave us the names of our months of the year. And that also provided us with where to be and when to be there. Because you can have different cycles 
that are going on at different times simultaneously. But it's like you have to understand that um, the plant hardiness zone from like down in Maine, yeah. it's a lot different than up in the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. And even Nova Scotia itself being on a tilt, it's like the Yarmouth and Shelburne County, things become available two weeks early. Then two weeks later here in mid Nova Scotia, like Toro or Millbrook where we are now, things happen two year or two weeks in advance of what happens in Cape Breton. Yeah. So there's like a whole month of like if you've got something that is in season for um, two week period, that extends it. So again, uh, the semi nomadic way, it was always about preparation. And today, Mi'kmaq don't have that. They, they live for the moment. They know that they're being provided for, and um, they don't worry about tomorrow. They go, tomorrow will take care of itself. But in our past way of life, everything was in preparation for what is to come or to prepare for when things are available. Right. That is coined as Indian time. It's like you do it when the time is right. And I know Roger always talks about, when he, when he talks about the egocentric way, the egocentric worldview, he talks about how, um, you know, a, a person isn't better than a snail, right. or isn't better than a worm, and a worm Creator isn't better than an elephant. Creator us better. just like it created them, and they are no more worthy, that's right, and we're no more worthy. I shouldn't say they're no more worthy, but yeah, we're no more worthy than them. Right. We even had that discussion in here, and finding bugs. Like don't crush the bug and throw it in the garbage or flush it in the toilet, put them outside. <laughs> it's yeah. like just even having that point of view amongst the staff, and that's the older ones as well as the younger ones. Is like, oh. All right, back to Diz. Um, if we look at the big picture again, the, the main message here is being ocean literate. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, knowing that the ocean affects us and that we affect the ocean. But there's also seven main principles to go along. Do you mind if we go through those quickly? Sure. I can read each one out and then we can kind of talk about them briefly. So number one is that the earth has one big ocean with many features. And that one, yeah. And this goes back, if if I can have a minute, where you asked, where did, where did ocean literacy come from or the term? Because yeah. that ties directly to these seven principles. Yeah. So in the United States in early 2000s, like 2004 or five, it was a group of ocean scientists from NOAA that got together with marine educators and for a very specific purpose worked to try and how do we get more ocean science knowledge into the national education curriculum in the US. Right. And, and they built or co-developed these essential principles, which there are seven. And that really drove kind of the structuring of the education program. So it's important to note that, and we will come to these seven, that they are they are important principles and they're they are definitely factual and and good for everyone to know, but they were generated from a very specific initiative in the US that was ocean science uh, focused and education to serve education needs. So, okay. and I'll, I'll loop back to that after we go through the seven, just add a few more comments. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the funny thing that the Ursa has one big ocean with many features. It, I don't know if you know Dr. Wendy Watson, right? Yeah, indeed. She always comes to mind every time I hear someone say oceans, oceans, yeah. and you hear it all the time. And I am 
guilty of it as well. I'll, I'll say it every once in a while, but I've been scolded, not scolded, but I've been scolded once, once or twice. Um, it's like, there's only one global ocean. It's all connected. And it's true. Right. Um, the, the, the other thing that comes to mind with that one is the, the incident that happened, um, was it in the nineties when a tanker ship went over and all the little ducks came out, mm. the little rubber duckies, the bath toys, and they ended up Everywhere. all over the world. I think that opened a lot of people's eyes that the earth is one big ocean that has five areas that humans have decided that this is what we're going to call the Arctic. This is what we're going to call the Atlantic, the Atlantic and the Pacific. They meet together. Where, where's that line? No one really, really knows when you're crossing it. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think too, like it's just human nature. I think we, we tend to care more and protect more when we don't know there's only one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, there is only one global interconnected ocean. Like it's not, although we on maps and stuff draw lines, like it's all connected. And so I think that helps too with the narrative of trying to mobilize people to really value and care for the ocean when we've got one big one we're all responsible for. Number two, the ocean and life in the ocean shape the features of the earth. Now that one kind of fits in with number three, which is the ocean is a major influence on weather and climate. Those kind of fit fit really together because you can't really disassociate weather and climate with the features from from the earth as well. Do you want to talk about that one a bit? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Those are they're fairly straightforward in the sense it's just I think affirming the the notion that you know the ocean really is that determining life system, right? It, it's it's it does it regulates our climate. You know, it stores carbon. Uh, it it also shapes, yeah, a lot of the features on Earth. And so I think it's just important to elevate for people the significance um, of the ocean as driving so many major and, and vital kind of systems on the planet. And one of them I think people are starting to realize is that hurricanes and hurricane strength is related to ocean water temperature. So with warming oceans, you'll often get, whether it's stronger or more numerous, scientists aren't 100% sure of which, but it's even just putting putting those two together. I apologize. I just had a bit of a technical difficulty where I lost Diz, but we got her back. So number four, the ocean makes the earth habitable. And this one essentially forces us to look into the geological past to see see any differences, I guess. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think... It, again, that that notion that just understanding and appreciating that we need healthy life in the water and, and the biodiversity of life in the ocean to ensure healthy life on land. And, and, and I mean, currents, just, I mean, that, I guess this kind of goes back to number three, but if you don't have those ocean currents, they, the tropics would, would boil, quite literally boil, and then the poles would freeze. Number five is the ocean supports a great diversity of life and ecosystems. It's 76% of the earth. Like, how could it not? That's awesome. It's a great point. Absolutely. And again, but because, and even just in the context of Canada, let alone globally, like with so many of us living inland and the ocean not being relevant and our, or not, I mean, I shouldn't say relevant because we've just been talking for 30 minutes why it is, but when it's not palpable in our daily lives, like you don't think about that abundance of biodiversity that's in 76% of what covers the planet. And again, it's just something to be known and understood and celebrated and 
ensuring that we do our role to protect it. Yeah. Um, two more. The ocean, number six is the ocean and humans are inextricably interconnected. That's probably one that's kind of your expertise. Yeah. And of all seven principles, that's the one I, I hone in on the most because I think that if we do that one well, if we communicate that one well and we get everyone to really understand that, then the others, you know, kind of come to be. And so I think it really is about that that reciprocal relationship. And then the seventh one is admitting a bit of humility and a bit humbling. And that it's 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 saying that the ocean is largely unexplored, that we haven't explored most of it, which is true. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we know more about the surface of Mars and definitely the moon than we do about the depth of our ocean, not yeah. necessarily the coasts. You hear Sylvia Earle and some of the big, you know, global ocean champions or voices often reference that. And it's true. And it, it's, it is shocking when you think about that. We've spent so much funding and focus on learning more about other planets, you know, than we have about the global ocean on our own planet. And um, so I think, and it, there's certainly lots of attention on that in this, this ocean decade. And of the seven societal outcomes that are part of the decade, there is focus on really understanding and learning more about the places that have been relatively unexplored to date. Yeah. Um, now I don't want to assume anything cause I really don't know who will be listening to the show, but where should people go from here? Probably the most obvious for some of us is to go to the coast and to simply be present, um, put down our phones and observe what's going on many times in all weather, but what else can we do to become ocean literate, especially if we don't live quite so close to the sea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, you started out there. I think the personal connection, that personal experience, cause we don't, we don't act on what we know. We act on what we feel. Mm-hmm. We, we know that as humans, right? It's like without a personal connection or that kind of visceral connection to, to things or issues or places or people, like often we don't respond. Um, as well or as quickly. So I think, you know, for those who are able to have those personal connections or spend some time, I think that's fantastic. But there's also so many ways now where you can build those emotional or personal connections, even by not being physically at the sea. And there is so much work, like there's so many artists in Canada and filmmakers, you know, storytellers. Like I'm thinking, for example, the Sacred Journey exhibit, and I encourage everyone to check out. It's a digital exhibit. It's also going to be a traveling exhibit. So anyone on the West Coast this summer from July to, I think, January, this incredible uh, exhibit that's all about the Pacific Northwest Coast canoe journeys, the tribal canoe journeys, and how the resurgence of those canoe journeys um, as a kind of revitalization of indigenous culture, connection to ocean, um, youth empowerment. Like that is one of the most impressive exhibits I've seen. And there's a digital version online that is equally impressive. And I think spending time to just explore and learn through exhibits or films or stories like this or different artist creations are so essential because it's the human story, right? It's, it's, It's not just picking up a book on ocean science and reading it. Like, and I'm not dismissing our fantastic <laughs> ocean science community in Canada because that is a huge part of it. And what's really exciting, I mean, there are so many ocean scientists that are making that leap and finding really fun, creative, innovative ways to share their work with a much broader non-science, kind of non-academic audience, yeah. which I think is essential. 
Uh, and there's Polly. It's <laughs> good. There's lots of dogs and calls these days. <laughs> but I, so I, that would be one thing is to, to just really enjoy and access and explore the incredible resources um, that are out there that are really telling human stories uh, with the ocean. Um, I want to bring in indigenous knowledge one more time before we finish up. And I recently read the book, Why We Swim by Bonnie Choi. I think it's, I think it's Choi. It's T-S-U-I is her, her last name. It's a great book. I don't know if you've read it, but no, I highly recommend it. And in one section, she talks about how the Mokan people, locals that are living on remote islands off the coast of Thailand in Myanmar, they were in the path of the deadly tsunami that hit the Indian Ocean in December 2004, I think, killing 230,000 people. And although none of these people, the Mokan, had ever experienced a tsunami themselves in their lifetimes, elders had spoke of the legends of the seven roller waves, which comes every second generation. And armed with this knowledge and these legends, the people recognized the signs of an approaching tsunami and either headed for higher grounds or farther out to sea in their boats where they would essentially be safe. And they spared the lives of the whole group of people. Not one was lost. Mm. And similar stories exist of sudden saltwater floods in North America as well as um, mostly on the Pacific side. And although we no longer get a whole lot of major earthquakes or tsunamis here in the East, the indigenous peoples here still have an intimate connection with the ocean and its processes. And over thousands of years without written language, storytelling is how these people have successfully passed along the aquatic skills that are so key to their longevity and their survival. And as a national lead who has been part of these conversations with indigenous groups and organizations from coast to coast to coast, either east, north, and west, do you see a link between people that have a lot of traditional knowledge and who are very ocean literate? That was a mouthful. <laughs> no, so I've been enthralled by listening to that. Thanks for sharing it. I'll definitely be reading that book. And absolutely, I mean, I think that's just a perfect example, that story of the level of understanding and respect um, that Indigenous people have with the ocean and the stories, that generational storytelling that get passed on and and the insights um, and knowledge that are embedded in those stories are essential to, you know, the con ensuring kind of that generational well-being. And so that is a great example. And absolutely, I've, I mean, I've been so lucky that that expedition in 2017 was one example. I also, my very first job as a teacher um, back in 2001, I lived in Bella Bella in the Heltzik Nation and and had just an incredible opportunity to to live and be part of that community for close to two years. And, and I, you know, witness firsthand that the storytelling, we go out to this really special place called Quay and, and that's where a lot of the youth go out with elders on the land in this really yeah. special estuary. And a lot of those stories or stories through dance and song are shared. And, and I mean, what a remarkable and privileged opportunity as a, you know, inland settler Canadian to be able to just <laughs> be there and to to learn um, and listen. And it was really incredible. And and I think there's so much. I mean, that's the thing in many ways in this work we've done over the last few years in building the national strategy and now implementing it is ocean literacy is a, a modern term or a modern concept for something that Indigenous people have always known and for thousands of years. And yeah. And so I think in many ways, like, and I often 
think about and our indigenous colleagues who've been gracious you know partners and collaborators in this work to date <laughs> have reminded us it's it's actually a term and intervention for us non-indigenous yeah. people to get up to speed right and to actually learn and to build that that level of understanding and respect and and relationship um and we we have so much to learn you know from the indigenous people coastal people in canada and and when you spend some time up in inuit nunangat and across you know yeah. the inuit communities of the four settlement regions like there's just so much there to learn and yet you know what sixty thousand canadians like people live up in the north so few canadians will ever go to experience the north so it's part of the work too, right <laughs> is how do we how because if every canadian would have that opportunity to learn or interact with their experience and yet it's not feasible but how do we do that through all the innovations and virtual technology we have and uh, different kinds of storytelling and and collaboration and knowledge exchange and sharing you know there's a lot we can do um so yeah and sometimes there's, there's the language barrier as well unfortunately that a lot of those stories and those legends don't translate to english very well mm -hmm. um so there's also that that barrier unfortunately mm -hmm. I, I was just saying this at the end of this episode is that um it is a verb-based language, and mm -hmm. a lot of the times, whether you're with Mi'kmaq or you're in the Arctic and you're with Inuit or the Inuvialuit, right? A lot of the times, the translation from the indigenous language to English, it, it just it's no. not possible. No, it's not. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people who want things transcribed, they look at it that way and they try to do things themselves. And one of the examples that I was given was a blue whale. Right. A lot of bale, whales off of the Atlantic here. Yeah. But we had this conservation group that said, well, here's the Mi'kmaq word for blue. Here's the Mi'kmaq word for whale. Like, this is the Mi'kmaq word for blue whale. And it's like, no, we didn't call them blue whale. Right. It's like a blue whale is the largest and the biggest of all of the um, whales that we have, the species here. In fact, the biggest one in the world. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. In the, on the entire planet. And that's um, Geji Budak. And put up in that verb-based language is the one that blows. You see that little stem that right. when he blows. And, of course, he is the largest one that does that. It's like Keji Budap. It wasn't um, named after the color of him. And it's crazy so. when, you're, when you're talking about ocean literacy and passing on those teachings. How do you do that? How does an elder do that yeah. if they can't translate it? Again, that comes back to the, the importance of, of, of that, preserving that language. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's many things. Uh, I'm actually doing a project right now with the Nova Scotia Museum of Natural History, and it's an art project. And, of course, when you're dealing with um, objects in a museum, and myself as an artist, I'm painting pictures of things. Right. And it's like you paint a picture of a wolf. That's, that's one thing. But Mi'kmaq being, like, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, and that verb takes it to a whole new level. It's like, look at the word baktism. Baktism means the one that howls. So I've got a picture of a wolf howling. That's baktism. Not right. just a picture of a wolf standing there. It's like, you know, and so you take things to a, to a to different level. level. Yeah, with the verb-based language. Yeah. And even uh, Elder uh, Ernest Johnson from Eskasoni, he said, the Mi'kmaq were the first ones to say, oh, I see what you're saying. Because in that verb-based language, it evokes imagery inside your head. But... But again, that world base is very, very natural. It's very holistic. 
Um, it's like, you know, what do we do in order to survive and to sustain ourselves and still respect the environment that we pull these from? Yeah. That's why, like, even you coming here today, you gave me an offer, right? Yeah. You gave me sea salt from, like, you know, your place. This is natural. It's like your gift. And um, that is so our way. <laughs> yeah. So. You've been too generous with your time. Well, you, well yeah, and I might be too generous with yours, too. So. <laughs> is there anything that I glaringly missed here about ocean literacy that we should end on? No, I've, this has been a, such a fun conversation, Brian, and you've touched on a lot of different pieces. So I, I, I think that's great. I mean, my only kind of final message, and I, I did note it earlier, is, is just we sometimes get so stuck on terms, right? And, and I'm really yeah. mindful that ocean literacy is a term that largely comes from kind of an academic government space. It's where it's used. But as soon as you go on the ground and in community, it's not really an engaging term and it's not no. a term that's well used. And so we don't have to get stuck on, on the term itself. It's everything that it represents is the important, right? It's, it's about relationship connection, um, connecting those knowledge. to knowledge, knowledge sharing. Um, and, and also those values, behaviors and actions. Knowledge alone will not get us to where we need to go. It really is about behavior change at personal and organizational and government level. And I think, you know, that's the big takeaway from any conversation around ocean literacy. Yeah, I, actually, I really love that the knowledge sharing portion of it, because otherwise, you know, how are the youth going to know or how are how are your friends going to know or how is how are your grandparents going to know if they were never taught? So that's that's really great. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Well, there we have it. That concludes our episode for today. If you have any questions on ocean literacy or would like to suggest a topic for our show, please feel free to contact me. If anyone's interested, there is also a national group called the Canadian Network for Ocean Education, or CANOE for short. Until next time, we'll all look. Injured Executive producer for the Luton, our Living Ocean series, are Roger Hunka and Vanessa Mitchell, with the episodes produced by the Maritime Aboriginal People's Council. Narrative editing by your host, Brian Martin. Today's special guests were the Canadian Ocean Literacy Coalition's Dr. Diz Glithrow, as well as knowledge holder Gerald Glode. The song Broken Read in English, written by George Edward Chevery, performed by Colin Johnson, translated and performed in Mi'kmaq by Elder Catherine Sorby. Production support provided by the Government of Canada, specifically Transport Canada's Indigenous and Local Communities Engagement and Partnership Program, through Canada's Ocean Protection Plan. All rights reserved. It's a healthy wind coming to heal your water world. Injured well, can you hear the eagle cry high above the storm? Oh, perfect. <laughs> I feel like there's a delivery truck here. I was going to say, you might have, uh, if you need to run give me for just a second. One, give me yeah, just one absolutely. second. Hi, Flyers. <laughs> it's like a little boy, perfect. and he's so scared of dogs, too. <laughs>